Hey folks, it's really, really a privilege and a, and a pleasure to be able to present this material to you here tonight. Um, we've been um, three weeks now, I guess. This is the fourth session uh, in, in the seven-week series uh, on the foundations of Gulf Coast Community Church. This week's being the church's perspective, the centrality of God, and uh, I love presenting the, this material. I think it's, it is essential stuff. Um, I'm Pete Mishler, and um, my wife Denise and I, we really, we, we became a part of this church after our kids, our four kids, were pretty much um, just about out and on their own. That was back, though, now, 16 years ago in 1999. And, uh, and so... Um, the Lord allowed us to come and become a part of this church, uh, and uh, as we were making the transition, all of a sudden we found ourselves uh, with three of our four kids back with us. It was almost like a reset. It was a, a God redo for us, that, that in, in, during which time we saw miraculous, gracious work of God in our lives. And so even though even though both Denise and I had become Christians really together, uh, both from unchurched families growing up in Miami, and uh, we were saved though as teenagers, the Lord gracious, the, the Lord just sovereignly reached out and laid hold of us when we were, before we could actually go all the way in self-destruction, and brought us to Himself, and uh, and we lived for the Lord. Ever that the Lord actually gave me the opportunity to lead Denise to the Lord. Um, when I was a young Christian, uh, I met her in the context of church, and God was doing a remarkable work then. And I had the chance to pray with her one morning, one Sunday morning, to, as she uh, turned her heart over to the Lord. She was 15 at that time, and I was 16. And we were married in 1972. I was 18, and she was not quite yet 18. So we've been together for 42 years, and we've been living for the Lord, serving the Lord all through those, those years. And yet, as late as that was in our Christian walk, with our kids grown pretty much, um, we found that the Lord revolutionized a lot about our understanding of doctrine. And, it, and, our, and really a lot of things began to coalesce and come together in our understanding after we became a part of the church here in 1999. And this particular subject I think is so important. We have seven, just seven sessions in order that, to lay out the things that are really precious to us, that we think these are the central things that we need to really focus on as a church and build our church on. And, and this one, the church's perspective, the centrality of God, is part of that seven for a really important reason. Um, it's foundational to our faith. As our worldview as Christians is being rebuilt on this basis, it has a transforming effect on every area of our lives, how we understand the gospel and our relationship with God. It's, trans it's transformational for our marriages, how we approach them, whether marriage is about a way to make me happy or whether marriage is about a way to image God, the, the one who invented marriage and made it for a purpose, and I'm like, I go, I'll go right off on that. 
for child rearing, for facing adversity in our lives, for making large and small decisions, how we go about approaching the task of making decisions in our, and, and direction in our life, everything. See, if you take and you add Christian trappings to a, me, a me-centered worldview, um, what you're really doing is building your life on, on a foundation of sand. And every time you build on sand, I mean, it can look beautiful for a season, but there will come a time when there will be devastating consequences to building on sand. And so when you build your life with Christian trappings built on a me-centered universe, a me-centered world, that's what's going to happen. There's going to be disillusionment. There's going to be shipwrecked faith. There's going to be bitterness. And and so, you know, it may seem self-evident that a truly Christian worldview has to be built on the doctrine of the centrality of God, but this is not the predominant perspective of the modern Western church much less the surrounding culture that you and I formed our perspectives, our worldview, our understanding of life in. Our perspectives form all the underlying presuppositions that we have about life and its meaning, and this determines how we interpret all the incoming information that we receive. And that interpretation affects how we respond and what our attitudes and our behavior will be, how, how we assess what everything is about. So, while you and I as Christians are called by Scripture to live with a God-centered perspective in our worldview, this runs completely contrary to the human nature, the sin nature, with which we were all born. Ever since the fall of man, we each see ourselves as at the center of everything, as if we were the creators of our own reality. And it all exists to make us happy. And you know, there's a lot about life that begins to shape you (laughs) as you grow up, but it never really shakes that loose, the way that you approach things. It has to be revealed to us, and and so it is that God has graciously done so. All the societies of humans that were ever on the earth have operated from this perspective, a man-centered, a me-centered perspective, and and as enemies to to the rule of the real God, but particularly, you know, in, in modern, in, in post-enlightenment uh, society, the centrality of man is really the unquestioned assumption of any conversation that you have, of any, of any course in education, of, of, of entertainment, of any discourse, the unchallenged, unquestioned assumption underlying everything is that reality begins with me and what's important begins with me. And so God graciously is seeking to dispose, you know, take, take that out and replace it with a proper perspective. And so that we're going to uh, seek to do that today as we're going to base our teaching primarily in the first, chap- uh, the first chapters of the book of Revelation you could, take the, you could really start with Genesis and go all the way through and use the entire scriptures as a basis for this teaching about the centrality of God. But we're going to go right to Revelation where we see how that perspective looks from a heavenly perspective as opposed to the earthly perspective. So before we get started in the scripture, why don't we take a, a moment and, and just ask the Lord for his help. Father, 
we, we just delight that you are changing our perspective, our understanding of life. And we want to pursue that and embrace it, oh God. And we ask, Lord, that as we, as we look at this material tonight, as we seek to inform our thinking and our understanding by your word, that by your Holy Spirit you would help us. Help us, Lord, to, to be able to build on this kind of a foundation. And uh, so I pray, Lord, that you would help me to not get in the way, but to clearly uh, bring these things and that you would open our hearts to understand and grasp and delight in and rejoice in these truths from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 9, we have, uh, we have John uh, writing to the churches, and uh, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And, and so here we have the beginning chapter we have of this revelation. We have John writing from the Isle of Patmos, which is a tiny little island in the Mediterranean off the coast of Turkey where modern-day Turkey called Asia then. And he's, he's banished. And, and he is really isolated away from everything, seemingly. And so... Um, it would seem from the perspective of when this book was written, and we don't know exactly when it was written. Most, uh, most uh, scholars, I guess, biblical scholars would, would try and pin it you know, around the time of um, the 90s, the mid-90s, something like that. And uh, in the reign of Domitian, the emperor Domitian, um, there's a tiny minority that would put it actually pre- fall of Jerusalem in the 60s, late 60s in Nero's reign. But either way, and you know, it's, that would be a tiny minority, but it would be some pretty, you know, some guys that I really like. So we don't know exactly when it was said, but the fact is, is that the church was undergoing persecution. And John was, he was, he'd been banished. Now if it was in the mid-90s, he had already seen the death of the, the apostles and the church did, you know, the church was, it was growing, and yet it just seemed impossible. If you think about it in the perspective of, of the first century Rome, Roman Empire, it seemed to be so inconsequential. It seemed to be so insignificant, insignificant and marginalized from, from what was really happening, where decisions and power, the seat of power and so forth, and... You know, I think that there's a lot about that that we could relate to today, except for that we've seen after 2,000 years, we've seen the, the gospel advancing and advancing and advancing, and yet sometimes I think we might look around our world today in, in like the modern West, where, where it seems to be a post-church age or a post-Christian era, and it seems like the, the, signif- the, not, uh, the, uh, the church is marginalized once again to some degree, and that that uh, we seem to have less a waning influence, and yet um, that is not the reality. In some ways, there's truth there, but, but that is not the whole truth by any means. So he's, John is writing to the seven churches, 
in Asia Minor, not just these seven churches. That wasn't even all the churches. That was just some of the churches in Asia Minor. So we know that that, that letter or that revelation that was written to these seven churches um, had to be more of a, a, a kind of a writing to the whole church universal throughout the ages. The seven, number seven is a number of perfection. So these churches would serve as representative of all God's church throughout, throughout the church age from Pentecost until today. So let's go on from there and take a look at uh, just a little part from Revelation 2.13. Have you guys been reading scripture at all? So somebody, Aaron, somebody you want to read uh, that to Revelation 2.13? It's up on the screen too, I think, yeah. Okay, so this is, this is uh, written to the saints in Pergamum, and um, it was north of Ephesus, and it was the center, in, uh, especially in the later time, in Domitian's time, of, of emperor worship. And so what we're seeing here is an earthly perspective. It says that, um, that it was where, where, Satan, uh, where Satan's throne is and uh, where Satan dwells. And Antipas, my faithful witness, was killed among them. I mean, couldn't Jesus have kept Antipas from being killed? I mean, you know, we see that throughout the New Testament, though. I mean, throughout the book of Acts. I think it was really shocking. When you just read, if you don't know anything and you are not have your religious glasses on and you're just reading through the early early part of the book of Acts, and all of a sudden... um, you know, all of a sudden, James is just taken. One of the, you know, one of the twelve is just taken and killed, just like that. I mean, that was and brutally just killed. And it had to be very shocking, and it had to be something that was like, "Wow, what's going on? Has God lost control here? What's?" I thought that you know the church was going to triumph and that it was going to advance and it was going to win, and and so we see in our lives the same kinds of things that God doesn't keep bad things from happening. Is he not reigning? Is he not in control? Um, So we have a perspective here that this is where Satan's throne is. Is that real? It is real. It is real. Jesus said that, you know, he's the, you know, ruler of this world in a sense, but we know that that's not the final answer. So we know that that bad things happen and that Satan is dwelling here and apparently he had his throne in that place. Again, that was the center of, of emperor worship in the, in the Roman world. Um, he was referred to, Domitian was referred to as Lord and God. <laughs> so, Anyway, have you ever looked at things and, and it looks as if evil has gained the ascendancy as an in control and you're wondering, God, are you paying attention? Have you lost control? What's going on here? I'd say that the suffering saints who were the original recipients of Revelation may have been asking that. And John may have well also been asking the same thing. But he's going to be caught up now into heaven. And he can see the events of the universe from a heavenly perspective. You see, their lives in their city are not ultimately ruled by Satan's throne, nor any aspect of this world that we, no matter how dark and deep and, and seemingly isolated from the rule of God it is. 
whether it's where they're beheading people, where Boko Haram is kidnapping uh, girls and, and selling them into sexual slavery or slaughtering innocents, whatever it is, no matter how dark and how evil, it is not beyond the rule and the reign of God. So we see that both perspectives are real, but the heavenly one is more real. So, and I know that it seems like, you know, how can two, you know, how can they both be real if they're so divergent, both perspectives, that Satan is ruling, but God is actually ruling? Well, think about, think about the example of, for instance, of Elisha and his servant. When the, the, when the king of the Syrian army had he'd sent his army out after uh, um, Elisha in, in 2 Kings chapter 6. Do you remember that scene? They wake up and come out in the morning and they're surrounded with the army of the Syrians. Or at least the servant comes out and runs back in and says, and says Master, what are we going to do? We're surrounded by the army. And, and Elisha had already seen that they actually, they were surrounded by the army, the host of God. And so he just prayed and said, Lord, open his eyes and let him see what's really happening. And so God did that. It's a, it's a really fun read if you're not familiar with it. It, um, it, it took place. And uh, then they were struck blind and Elisha just walked them into the, to the um, king of Israel and everything was better. But anyway... There is a throne that rules over all other thrones, and that is the throne of God, and it's at the center of the universe. Everything that happens has its beginning at the throne of God, in the center. So we're going to start there by going there to look at this extraordinary glimpse that we're given through uh, John's revelation, that we've been given into ultimate reality, and that's in Revelations chapter 4 and 5. We're going to look at chapter 6 as well a little bit. Next, we, next, we'll seek to apply the truth we learn here by looking at three ways to live with God at the center. Then we'll examine two enemies of God-centered living. And lastly, we will look at how a God-centered perspective changes how we do ministry in the church. So we're going to take a look at this, what we build this doctrine of the centrality of God on, scripturally, what's really real, in other words, and then we're going to seek to apply it, that's all. So let's look at Revelation chapter 4 uh, and verses 1 through 6. Somebody want to read that for me? Go ahead. After this, I looked, and there before me was the door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me by the trumpet says, Come up here, and I will show you what you must take place after this. At once I was, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven. That other, Carnelian. Center around the 
forthright. And then we see in Revelation 5, 6. Somebody? Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the earth, encircled by the four living creatures in the earth. He had seven wounds and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then 5.11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels So what we're seeing here is not, um, it's not like a dream or a vision in the sense of God putting something into his mind. What we're seeing is that, God, is that God gave John the opportunity so that all of us could catch a glimpse of actually being lifted up to see reality, to see what's really happening. So you got all this stuff going on, this guy, people are being martyred, John is, is exiled, it seems like everything is out of control, and the Emperor Domitian actually made Christianity illegal. So now it's illegal to be a Christian. And that's the case all over the world today in many different places. It's illegal to be a Christian. What if it becomes illegal here? Could it never happen? I don't know. But then he's lifted up and he sees this. Now the word thronos, throne, is used 19 times in chapters 4 and 5 alone. All but a couple of these refer to the throne of God. We don't easily stand really what a picture of a throne is communicating because we don't have a throne in America, and nor have we ever in our, in our history. We, we rebelled against that and we established something else. See, this is not the Oval Office. This is a throne. Um, we think of people being elected and being in office for a while, and of course they have checks and balances and can only do what the other elected officials allow them to do which sometimes is too much and sometimes maybe not enough. I don't know. God, but God is on the throne, and he rules. He makes the decisions. Nobody argues with his decisions. What it doesn't do any good if they do argue with him? But in heaven, they definitely don't argue with him. <laughs> okay? He carries it out. He is sovereign. Heaven is, at, is, is his throne. The earth is his footstool. All we see down here is the footstool. The decisions are made and the decrees... Uh, originate in heaven. Everything originates at the center, on the throne. James White, the author and apologist, says, I believe one of the reasons modern men struggle with some of the plain biblical truths of old is because so few of us any longer have a king. Royal power and authority was fundamental when the scriptures were written, and often the power of God to properly rule over his own creation is likened to the power of a king. Although that's a really weak or analogy, it, it, was, it was a much better analogy than what we have available to us today. So it was likened to the power of a king to rule over his realm. Since most of us do not bow to a king, we see little reasons why we should bow to God. In Psalm 135, 6, it says, The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. When we say that God's throne is at the center of all creation, what we're really saying is that God directs all things. He's sovereign. He's in charge. Would somebody like to read this, the scripture from Isaiah 14, 26, and 27? 
Yes. This is this is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has proposed and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out and who can turn it back? That's right. Now why why does God direct all things? Well, First of all, because God created all things. And God sustains all things. Therefore, God rightfully rules over all things. Colossians 1, chapter 16 says, For by him all things were created, and this is speaking of Jesus, a second person of the triune God, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Romans eleven thirty six says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So that's, you know, we know why God directs all things. So what, to what end does he direct all things? Well, God directs all things in such, in such a way that they render glory to him. This stands at irreconcilable odds this whole concept with what we see in our old nature as the purposes of everything to render glory to moi, to myself. So there, there is opposition here and it's ongoing opposition that we need to address every day of our life by the, the help of the Lord, by the truth of his word and the power of his Holy Spirit this opposition that stands at odds with the fact that he is ruling over all things in order to bring glory to himself, in order to reveal his glory. In Revelation 4 and 5, we have a picture. We have at the center of our throne, God's throne. Everything revolves around that throne. So Ron has a picture of that. So here's God. He's at the center. And it says 4.1, I was in the spirit. There before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And then around the throne, we have the four living creatures on each side of the throne, full of eyes in front and behind. So we have this picture of God at the very center. Everything that happens, every event, is that scientific way of saying it? Every event, every event starts there. So, and then uh, the four living creatures, and then we have this picture around that. Around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones are 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And then around that, you have, you have the angelic hosts from chapter 5. I, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, or 10,000 times 10,000. So it's just a, a vast sea of the angelic host. Picture that. It's just, it's just powerful. It's profound. This is what's going on right now. Right now. This is the reality. We got this reality here, but there's this greater reality. And then around the angelic host, it says, in the next slide, <laughs> it says, every living creature on heaven in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing, honor and glory and might forever and ever. So you've got this profound picture of everything in reality centering right there. 
Now, it doesn't feel that way most of the time on earth. I mean, if you want to know where the center is, I don't know, you know, New York or Washington, D.C. or Hollywood or Nashville, who knows, or some other world center. And in that day, Rome. Anything that wasn't Rome was, was podunk. You know, there was, there was no important decisions or originating anywhere else. And certainly not on a little lonely rock of an island where somebody had been banished at the whim of the emperor and a decree who says, now says, Christianity is illegal because I said so. So who's in charge here? God's in charge. He made all things, he sustains all things, he directs all things from his throne in such a way that all things ultimately bow down and render glory to him. That's the rest of the story. This reign of God is veiled to fallen humanity. We come to understand and embrace his rule through faith. And it is God's wisdom and mercy that he hasn't yet fully unveiled his rule on the earth because when he does, history will be over. From the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost until today, the kingdom rule of Christ is uniquely demonstrated through the lives of his people as he conquers our hearts through regeneration and extends his rule in our lives, in our hearts throughout a lifetime. Throughout the whole lifetime, he's extending his rule over our lives. And it's, it's a profound thing. Pilate asked Jesus if he was a king. And he replied, if you remember, my kingdom is not of this world. See, any, any petty tyrant can put people in subjugation, and they always have. They've always been in the history of mankind. But this doesn't prove their greatness. Tyrants have come and gone since the beginning of time. Where's Domitian today, or Nero, either one of them? He sought, Domitian sought to eradicate Christianity. Now, Nero didn't quite do that. He just hated Christians and Jews and wanted to get them out of his city, um, But Domitian actually sought to eradicate Christianity. But where's Domitian today? This was essentially, um, I don't know, the spread, you know, I don't want to get into that, Uh, never mind. In more recent times, totalitarians have sought to extend their control beyond mere physical subjugation to the control of the mind. If you look at, you know, communism and some of the, the, the totalitarians of the 20th century and the 21st century, um, but they failed. They, they can't do it. Only God has shown the power to bring the human heart under his rule. Only Jesus Christ, only our God. So the question that remains is, if, if he's on the throne, if he's at the center of all, how do I relate this to my life? How do I relate to everything going on in my life in such a way that it renders glory to God? Well, we do this by being informed by a God-centered perspective in all of our lives. So let's take a look at three ways to live with God at the center. First of all, by trusting God in the midst of, of trial. There's nothing yet, though. What's going on in your life today is not a surprise to God. What we see happening, we don't have to be over- overwhelmed with because uh, God is in control. We don't have to be anxious because God is in control. Uh, But this doesn't mean that it's going to work out to our ends. What it means is that God is in control, but he's not a means to an end. Living with God at the center means supplanting our goals and agendas and living for his. 
So just because he's in control, and this is so important, does not mean that things are going to work out the way that I want them to. Okay? It means that God graciously is in charge for his ends and purposes, for his goals and agenda, not our own. And in ultimately, we know that his goal, his goals in our life, his agenda is for our ultimate good and his glory. Let's take a look at Revelation chapter 5 again. Um, Instead of reading that right this second, because, yeah, there's, there's just a lot there. Um, well, let's, just, let's go ahead and read it. Somebody want to? Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne the scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll with the seals? And no one in heaven All right. So we see that the Lamb is the only one who is, opened, uh, who is able to open the seals. And what are these seals that are being opened? Well, we see in the next one that one of the seven seals is uh, the, a white horse that is going out to conquer. Okay? And then we see that's, then that's a picture of Christ going forth to leading the church into the world to bring the gospel. But then we have another uh, seal that's the red horse of war. And another seal that we have is the black horse of famine. And then we see another horse that is the pale horse. It's the horse of, of death. Death and Hades followed him. And so all of these seals, though, ultimately are under the control of Jesus Christ. None of these things which from an earthly perspective would be coming from the throne of Satan are beyond the control of the Lamb. Nothing can be done outside of the Lamb opening the seal. History is from Him, through Him, and history is is rendering glory to Him. History is His story, truly. So this whole picture is, and that's why John wept. Can you imagine being in his position? It's like he knew who's in control. He wept. Nobody was found worthy to open the seals. Who's in control of this situation? And then the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain. He hears the lion of the tribe of Judah and he turns and what he sees the lamb who was slain. He's in charge of history. So all these things, bad, good, the whole unfolding of history is coming under his control. It's his story. William Hendrickson says, we see God's footstool. Let us not forget his throne. To be sure, we say to them that love God, all things work together for good, but what do we really, do we really believe it? Sometimes we speak and act as if the control of events and the destiny of the world rested in the hands of men instead of in the hand of God. Do you worry about the economy or your kids or the direction that this country is headed in? 
the direction that the world is headed in, it spins out of control. I mean, different people are worried about different things. You may be worried that a crazy Ayatollah is going to get a hold of a nuclear device and explode it. Send it over here or explode the whole Middle East trying to get rid of Israel. Who knows what? You may be worried about the economy. I don't, you know, there's different areas where you look and it's like, is this, who's in, in control? Well, God is in control. So trusting, trusting God is the opposite of trusting in ourselves or in what man can do for us. And trusting God, faith is about where we go with our fears and our troubles. In 1 Peter 3.14 we read, Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. That's why we're not frightened because Christ is Lord and we've bowed to him. This is not about being passive, however. You know, we see the state of things, we cry out, Lord, let your will be done on earth as they are in heaven. And see on what Peter bases this command not to fear what they fear. In verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We do not need to fear what the world fears when we are going to Christ, living with Christ at the center of our lives. The foundation for a God-centered life is a God-dependent prayer life. It is there that we bring our fears and we say, if we say we trust in God but we're not praying, we're really not trusting. We're really actually just engaging in a lazy kind of escapism, a fatalism. And that's not Christianity. So, if we say that we trust in God, that, needs, that trust is actually demonstrated, the reality of that, in crying out to God. It's not, it's not lack of it, trusting in Him to be afraid and run to the throne of grace. It's not trusting in Him if we engage in a kind of passive sort of fatalism. Does that make sense? So truly trusting God starts with the gospel. Look at Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I have found it helpful in the middle of, of trials, uh, oftentimes throughout my life with my, my wife, my, my kids, and others, by, by just asking, what's the greatest problem that you have? What's the greatest problem you have? What's the greatest problem any of us have? The greatest problem is being separated from God and being under His righteous judgment. Being separated from God and under His righteous judgment. Being separated by our own sins. We couldn't do anything to remedy that. Nothing. We were dead in our sins. But God did something because of His great love. He bridged that gap when we were still enemies and drew us to himself. Jesus died for the ungodly, you and me. If that problem has been solved in Jesus Christ, what, what other problem could we face that would really hold a candle to that? So, 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We have a quote from Spurgeon. Which someone else could read, as well as me. Someone want to read that? 
God's own comforting to his children and the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty both ordains their affliction, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the dominion of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon that throne. Amen. So we've seen that, that um, trust, trusting God in the midst of trial is a way of living with him at the center. Secondly, we see that, uh, that we can live with a God-centered perspective by living our lives in submission to his will. While we'll often admit on Sunday mornings that God is sovereign, God is at the center of the universe, we usually function as if we were at the center of the universe. I mean, that's, that's the default mode. In our sinful nature, we see a man-centered universe, a me-centered universe, and when we are a me-centered, everything and everyone must serve us, food, cars, entertainment, whatever. Why? Because in our mind, our need is more important than what God requires. We're, we're kind of like lunatics. We're addicted to this crazy, destructive preference of self, and it's just the way we're wired. When we're man-centered, we will likely acknowledge God, but for this reason, God is there to serve me. God is going to bless me. God exists for my good. I can have a sinful worldview and add God to it. Just make him the one who does me the most good. He's, he's wonderful to me. If we're God-centered, he becomes my reward, my great treasure, the ends rather than the means. Thanking him is a priority. Loving others is a priority. Being content is a priority. Why? Because these things are what he requires. When I'm not getting the food I want, then being content glorifies God because that's what he's required of me in every situation. And, and being thankful for him, to him for the fact that I am eating, having food and clothing. If God's at the center of our lives when others wrong us, we, we can not focus on how we have been wrong, but rather on how we're to respond in a way that will enter God, honor God. Sounds easy, right? <laughs> Well, it is uh, what having a God-centered perspective increasingly enables and allows us to do more successfully, more and more throughout our lives. We begin to understand conflict differently. Instead of seeing conflict as an evil that makes us miserable and therefore must be avoided all, at all costs, or won at all costs, okay? That's the two basic approaches to conflict, right? Flee or conquer, win. Instead of seeing uh, conflict that way, we start to see that God is, is using it to bring sanctification and reconciliation for ourselves and others. What if the negative situation I find myself in is not even primarily about me at all, um, but it's about what God intends to do in the life of the other person involved? What if I'm, when I'm living it with a God-centered perspective, I place myself in a position to be a peacemaker, a servant of the gospel of reconciliation. When persecuted, I can actually rejoice. When mistreated, I'm enabled to entrust myself to God. When sinned against, forgiveness is possible, and I can ask, what is the God-glorifying response? So, when we see that our marriage is not firstly about our spouse and ourselves, but about God. Did you know that? That marriage is not firstly about the husband and the wife. It's the first person in the marriage is God. It puts conflicts, it puts differences, it puts everything in a different light. 
Same with our children, our bosses, our parents, siblings, every relationship. When God is on the throne and he's at the center, it changes, just changes your perspective. I don't know how many times I repeat the same phrase. I know it gets repetitive, but it does. It just transforms how you see, how you approach these things, and what it is, the value that you're seeking in those relationships. Okay, the third way we live with a God-centered perspective is by living in constant fellowship with him. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, Rejoice, Paul says, always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. While believers will undergo many sorrows and troubles, there is a joy that we're, that we're to have in life because Christ is conquered. Knowing the ultimate outcome of events, trusting in his invisible work, we're, able, we're even commanded to rejoice <clears throat> always, to live life in a state of grumbling is to live in a me-centered world. Of course, we don't immediately go to the suffering believer who happens to be grumbling and start telling him to stop. Well, stop your grumbling. No, we, we come alongside, we bear their burdens, we grieve with them, we lead by example, we pray with them in a God-centered way. So don't try to talk people out of their, their suffering or complaining. Come alongside them and help them bring their troubles to the throne of grace that they may receive mercy and find grace in the, to help in the time of need. My wife has always been the best reminder in my life that when I'm talking to people who are suffering and that the one thing that's necessary, I don't really have anything for them. The one thing that's important is that we go to the throne of grace. We go to Jesus. The reason the believer is aware of this invisible work of our Lord is rooted in our constant dependency on him expressed in prayer. So we are to pray pray without ceasing. Now, this doesn't mean that we're never, you know, to be not praying, but rather that prayer is our default mode so that we're regularly and often turning to the Lord in prayer. And not only are we calling on him, but this grows into a life of gratitude to him. So if you're if you're, if you're pressing through and just trying to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and press through and do things in your own strength, you're not going to tend to be very grateful to God when things go good. I have always said, because I, I've just observed it so much in my life, I've tried to... <laughs> I've had so many great ideas in my life. And every really, really good thing that's ever happened to me happened in spite of me. It just seems like I, I particularly, because of my pride and, and so forth, I guess I need that. So God demonstrates it to me over and over and over again. Um, that self-dependency is not a fruitful way to live. He wants us to be dependent upon him. And when you realize that your dependency on him, when when God acts in your life, you're better able to recognize it. Can you see how that works? When you're pressing through and think you're in charge of everything and doing it yourself, then, you know, when something happens, turns out right, you're like, yeah, I think I did that. So it's just, it's just good. Some recent big changes have happened in my life concerning my you know, business life, and, my, and, and it's nothing went according to my plan. Nothing. It went exactly not according to plan. It was a big ch- ch- turnaround of my plans. And 
So people ask me, so are you happy with the change that you've just has taken place in your business? And I say, I'm just having to say, yeah, God did it. He just did it. It wasn't my plan. And now all of a sudden I'm realizing, wow, God just overruled me, did something I was totally not planning on. And I'm having to see that he's graciously outruled me and outwised me, outsmarted me, and, and, you know, and did it his way for my blessing and for his glory. And, and so he's constantly teaching me. And I'm getting kind of old that some of these lessons I would think would be, but no, he just keeps on working relentlessly in our lives to teach us these things. So God is at the center of the, um, he's, he's at, on his throne at the center of all that exists and the only way to rightly relate to reality is under his sovereign rule. Now let's take a look at some enemies of God-centered living very quick, briefly. Simple human nature is the first one. Our hearts rage against the rule of God says in Psalm 2, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. The folly of man who denies God is evident in this. When he prospers, he says, my power and strength of my hands that produces wealth for me, from Deuteronomy 8. But when he suffers, he asks from Proverbs 19, how can God allow this? A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. As believers, we're, we're no longer to live in this kind of empty-headed thinking we can't allow our lives to be dictated by the lie that we are at the center. It takes a lifetime of practice, like straightening a tree with a curved trunk. We have to make a practice of speaking to our hearts instead of listening to them. I'm always saying that. I have, we have 12 grandchildren. And we actually have, we have one granddaughter who is 20 years old. And we say, and I always find myself saying to her, I don't want to pick on her, all of them really, but when sometimes that, that thing of saying, hey, hey, just stop for a second. Instead of listening to your heart, rehearsing things the way you see them, stop and speak to your heart. Speak to your heart the truth that God is in charge and the other biblical truths about how he gave his life for you. Speak the gospel to your heart. Ephesians four seventeen through 20. Somebody want to read that? I think that's on the next one. No, it's right here. So I tell you. Amen. We must constantly, we have to go to the gospel, to Christ to reorient our lives. The gospel orients our lives to the centrality of God in the universe. The gospel does. This brings us to the second enemy of God-centered living, which is uh, a false gospel, a man-centered gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Beware of the false gospels. They adopt the assumptions of the secular world around us. They're more influenced by the world around them than than, uh, influencing the world around them. Modern religion centers around man and not God. The question seems to be, how can I benefit or how can God benefit me? Um, The biblical question is, since God created me, what is due him from me? What pleases and gives glory to our creator? The real gospel begins with God and what's due him. The real gospel does not, as Piper said, make God a means of grace, but rather correctly poses grace 
as a means of gaining God. Uh, see how that works? Now, we're not going to get into this long quote by J.I. Packer. Um, I think we're going to skip over it. It's a long quote. It's a good quote. But we're going to skip over it. So, because... Okay, you want the quote from J.I. Packer? Okay, we'll put up, let's put up the quote from J.I. Packer. It is good. So, if somebody wants to read it out loud, you can do that. Without realizing it, we have during the past century bartered the biblical gospel for a substitute product, which, though it's similar enough in points of detail, is at the whole and decidedly different. Hence our troubles, for the substitute product does not answer the ends for which the authentic gospel has in the past day proved itself so mighty. Why? We would suggest that the reason lies in its own character and content. It fails to make men God-centered in their thoughts and God-fearing in their hearts because this is not primarily what it is trying to do. One way of stating the difference between it and the old gospel is to say that it is too exclusively concerned to be helpful to man, to bring peace, comfort, happiness, satisfaction, and too little concern to glorify God. The old gospel was helpful too, more so indeed, than is the new, but so to speak incidentally at its first It was always and essentially a proclamation of divine sovereignty and mercy and judgment, a summons to bow down and worship the mighty Lord on whom man depends for all good, both in nature and in grace. Its center for reference was unambiguously God, but in the new gospel, the center of reference is man. This is just to say that the old gospel was religious in a way that the new gospel is not. Whereas the chief aim of the old was to teach people to worship God, the concern of the new seemed limited to making them feel better. The subject of the old gospel was God, his ways with men. The subject of the new is man and the help God gives him. There is a world of difference. The whole perspective and emphasis of gospel preaching has changed. Yeah, see, I told you it was long, but it really is good. And uh, who have any of you, do you have the book? Have you read the book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer? It's a classic and one. it should be one of, in your library as one of your cornerstone works. It's, we, we, I think it's available <laughs> in the, the Resource Center, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It's, and that quote comes from, from Knowing God. Um, so I, I ended up taking more time to pitch that book, but really it should be, it should be um, you know, just as one of those basic works that you want to turn back to again in your life. When man is at the center, truth is secondary. Truth is secondary when man is at the center. Have you noticed that? Lifestyle and our needs are the utmost importance. The good news makes no sense. Makes no sense. The good news makes no sense without beginning with God and the bad news of where we truly stand with Him. Okay? It's like God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and all that. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to pick on that line. I learned that when I was, I learned that line and used it. And, you know, shared the gospel with a lot of people. Um, but... But listen, you need to start with God and the bad news of where we truly stand with Him. When God is at the center, truth is absolute. Listen, have you ever wondered about the anger that's directed at the church? Or maybe you've had some struggles with these things over issues like women's roles or, um, you know, that's, that's a, a tough one, or the homosexual lifestyle uh, or sex outside of marriage. We deal with that all the time. Um, Reproductive rights, um, and so forth. See, we can never make any headway on these issues without, without going back to the presuppositions. 
It starts with the presuppositions. Without a God-centered perspective, a presupposition, our arguments don't even make any sense. They don't. And we've lost the power of the gospel if we start on any other presupposition except for the centrality of God. You understand how that works? And as a matter of fact, if you find yourself frustrated in a conversation with somebody who has got the natural other assumption, that is probably where you need to go back to the beginning, like Inigo Montoya. Go back to the beginning (laughs) and get the presupposition right. And that's why, yeah, you can't, how are you going to argue? Why would we want to keep this lovely, sweet, dear couple from loving each other and getting married? Why would we be so mean? Unless it starts with God. And then you build from there. Okay, I won't get down that road any further. We've got to contend for the biblical gospel so that we can live the biblical gospel and advance the biblical gospel. This is essential for building a faithful gospel witness for this generation and the next. Now, I'm going to hurry because I want to get to these last things, okay? Jude, it says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share, I, I felt I had to write you and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Remember, the Lamb is at the center of the throne. And we see that in, in, in Revelation chapter 5. It's a funny thing. Um, I don't know if that's up there. Is it up there? Uh, in, in chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. We don't, I'm not going to read it right now, but we see God at the center of the throne, right? And then all of a sudden, what you're, see, you're seeing the Lamb at the center of the throne. And praise God that the Lamb is at the center of the throne, Because God is at the center of the universe, but we failed to give him glory. Though God is due glory, we've lived for ourselves. But because of the Lamb, God can give us mercy in his rule, rather than the wrath we deserve. Because of the Lamb, we can confidently know that God is ruling the universe for the good of those who love him. Thank God for the Lamb being on the throne. So now we do ministry with God at the center. We seek so much to... Uh, and this brings us to doing ministry with God at the center, how we do the life of the church and ministry here at Gulf Coast based as much as we can on these foundational truths. So first of all, this truth affects how we interpret Scripture, and I know you've been impacted by that. I've been powerfully impacted in my life. 45 Yeah, 45 years and a half since Jesus sovereignly laid hold in my life and rescued me. And so, but the last 16 I've been here. And I will tell you plainly that Jerry's preaching, the diet, the scriptural, biblical diet of preaching that I've had at Gulf Coast has had more impact on me, has built in me a better understanding of biblical uh, theology uh, than all those years be- before that. So I'm very thankful for it, the fact that, that we are doing ministry like this. The Bible is God-centered. He's the focus, not man, if you notice that. It's, it, the story is all about God. He's always the protagonist in, in, the, in the story of the Bible. So three things that 
I mean by the fact that the Bible's God-centered. He's the main character of the Bible, he's the main topic of the Bible, and he's the author of the Bible. That's Anne McCain, who is the author of The Supremacy of God in Children's Ministry. And she's, so even in children's ministry, by the way, we've used her materials, and she's really, really good. The Bible's not primarily about how man gets along in the world. It's primarily about God. The universe he created to glorify him, how man has broken God's law and rebellion against him, and how God is going about redeeming his people for the sake of magnifying his wondrous grace. This perspective affects the questions we ask of scriptures as we read it. What does this reveal about God and his redemptive purpose is a question to ask when you're reading scripture. And it affects how we teach the scriptures. It affects how we, the preaching diet is planned so that you notice that we're, we see that Jerry is teaching through the scriptures because they're God's declaration of what the church needs. Now you can preach the scriptures, but if you go around picking the scriptures that you feel like want to you know, get your point across um, here and there and there and there, then, then in many ways, you're still in charge. <laughs> but if you take the scriptures and you teach through, then you're allowing God in his sovereignty to choose the, the topic as well that's being taught. And so that's one of the reasons that we tend to preach through books of the Bible so, without skipping over parts. So that if there's something that the preacher doesn't feel like preaching... Well, guess what? God is dictating that this subject is important because it's there. And so, and so we get this balanced diet that God has chosen. And <clears throat> so we're not cherry-picking proof texts. Um, expository preaching is laboring to make sure that the intended message of the text, the intent, intended redemptive focus of the text, is the intended message and focus of the sermons. And the children's church curriculum is driven by the centrality of God. And uh, McCain says again, our Sunday school teaching should be God-centered because the Bible itself is God-centered. To be consistent with Scripture, we must focus on it, on namely God. I mean, focus on what it focuses on, namely God. So when we are God-centered in our teaching, we give children knowledge of God, and knowledge of God is the most wonderful thing we can give them. And then how we do ministry... Our worship music is to be God-centered and God-glorifying. Choosing music is not based on rhythm or beat, but on content. The content must be God-centered and God-glorifying and God-magnifying. There's a lot of good music out there in the church world that we don't use because, um, because you'll find that Darren is picking songs, or when I was picking songs uh, the same way, looking for songs that are gospel-centered, that are cross-centered, that are Christ-centered and God-centered, that are there, that are magnifying, glorifying God, and not man-centered. So you notice that in the content of the songs, even, that we do. Felt needs in the community do not drive what we choose to do. The gospel drives the choices for ministry. The gospel teaches us that people's greatest need in Christ uh, is to see God for who he is. This is more important than what they fill out maybe on a survey or what they want from a church. God is in direction of the church. Um, I have heard R.C. Sproul say, do you want your church to be relevant? It will always be relevant if people meet with God. Well, we've run past our time. Let me just sum up by saying God is on the throne at the center of all things and the only way to rightly relate in the universe is under his sovereign rule. 
that was a lot of material. <laughs> and thank you for your patience as you sit through it. But did, you have, did it bring any thoughts or questions that you would want to pose?